Good morning, my name is Alicia. Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Exodus chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in third through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room, back of the room, <laughs> to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Uh, as is our custom, let's just take a minute to uh, pause and welcome the Lord to be with us this morning. Jesus, our King, how, however close we, however close or far, we feel to you this morning, we still acknowledge your nearness to us. We acknowledge your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be around us, within us, as we hear one another and hear your heart and desire through the scriptures. Thank you for being so faithful to us, so loving, so patient, so close. Amen. Uh, I'd like to open this morning by inviting us all to travel back to 2004, to my eighth grade school year. Uh, some of my core memories from 2004, The Incredibles had just been released. Uh, the Red Sox would eventually win the World Series, and yes, I do uh, use Red Sox teams in my mind as personal data points in my timeline. Um, the song Yeah by Usher was featuring Lil Jon, Ludacris, topped the charts at the time, was taking my awkward, weird, sweaty middle school dances by storm. Uh, I think even now when I hear that song, I can still feel myself get all tense and sweaty. Um, I was a public school kid, and my school system, we followed an academic model uh, called ability tracking. Uh, it's a model where higher achieving students are identified in the sixth grade, they're grouped together, and then put on a separate track at an accelerated pace. The theory here being that better students would do better 
when grouped with other better students. Okay, so in the first week of my sixth grade year, one of the first things we did, the school tested us, took the 30 highest scores in our grade, and then grouped us all together. And I was one of the 30. Now, as a young kid, I neither knew this was happening, nor did I care this was happening, right? From my perspective, all I, all I did was I just switched classrooms. I did, however, very much start to care about the social ramifications, because all of a sudden, me and 29 other kids would all have the same exact schedule for all subjects for the next six years of our lives, right? All the way to high school graduation, we, we were a little pod that traveled together. It was a huge dramatic shift. Our group, we became known as the Geometry Kids Click. Uh, we were dubbed that because we got, to take, we got to take geometry before everyone else. Uh, we Geometry Kids, uh, super cool name for a gang, by the way. Uh, we did our own thing at our own pace. We had our own special classrooms. We had our own lesson plans. We had our own slang. We all became great friends. We called ourselves the G-Kids, which is kind of cool. Uh, we were our own little bubble in the school. There was, however, a problem, right? Every day, there was a 28-minute period when my bubble got burst. Lunchtime, right? My, my daily reminder that, oh yeah, other kids go to this school too. And to quote the uh, wise philosophy from the 21st century work, Mean Girls, uh, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial. Okay, so in Mean Girls, we had cafeteria clicks like the freshmen, the ROTC guys, the preps, the JV jocks, the over-enthusiastic band geeks who all sat together in their own tribes. In my school, the clicks were very obvious. Kids sat together along racial lines. Ability tracking, it sort of have, has fallen out of favor today. Um, critics argue that the model is fine in theory, but actually in practice, the model works to isolate poor and minority students in low-level groups, right? And data overwhelmingly agrees with this because these accelerated groups are overwhelmingly white. And this was exactly my experience. So across the entire student body at my school, 61% were students of color. 61%, that's three out of every five students. But then when you looked at the 30G kids, right, there's only one who was a student of color. And yes, 30 is a small sample size, uh, but that is 3% versus 61%. And that wasn't noticeable to me at all when I was in my bubble, right? But the lunchroom brought this glaring disparity to my face. Because broadly speaking, of course, in one section of the cafeteria, we had the G-kids, right? We all sat together. Then next to us, we had all the white kids who were not the G-kids. And then on the far side of the classroom were the other 61% of the student body the students of color. And this is natural, right? Birds of a feather flock together, uh, and that's what humans do too, right? Especially in diverse contexts. It's a phenomenon that is known as self-segregation. Uh, it's often the reason for the rarity of interracial friendships. Sociologists consider it a major source of racial animosity, because if you never sit with different kids at lunch, you don't get to know anything about them. And if you don't get to know anything about them, it's hard to like them, right? We fear what we don't know. We fear who we don't know. So here's where I'm going with all of this. Through the combination of ability tracking in the classroom on one hand and self-segregation in the lunchroom on the other hand, I was subconsciously, unknowingly adopting this us and them structure of my world. 
After all, right, we, the G-Kids, we got to take geometry first, right? Teachers told us how much they loved us on a regular basis. We were told that we were the smart kids, the good kids, the well-behaved kids. And then we go to the lunchroom, and the lunchroom is chaotic. Chaos, that's totally normal, by the way, totally healthy, but a chaos that brought new faces to me, new noises to me, with all the bad kids, right? All the kids that I didn't know, all the slang that I didn't know. And as a young boy, I was experiencing the totally normal social anxiety that comes with walking into a lunchroom. Yet as I reflect today, it's clear to see how I started attributing that negative anxiety, that negative feeling to those other kids, those bad kids. Kids who just so happened to be majority students of color. There was a well-behaved us. There was a chaotic them. There was an intelligent us. There was a non-intelligent them. There was an us that performed well, that teachers loved, and there was a them that presumably frustrated teachers. And because my them happened to be majority, students of color, I was gradually pushed and as a young boy into this implicit bias and this subconscious racism. And I like, I like to think that now, sorry. I like to think that now, 17 years later, that I, I have grown beyond these implicit biases of every kind. Whether it be biases towards those of another race, gender, citizenship, class, education, sexual orientation, or able-bodiedness. But when I feel discomfort, when I feel anxiety, when I feel any of those 11-year-old lunchroom feelings, right, I can still feel my brain want to revert back to the us and them framing of my world. What about you? Where and when do you feel yourself going to an us and them? Do you feel it when you're feeling just a tad socially anxious? When you hear another language that's not yours? When you drive through a certain section of downtown? When somebody says something that you disagree with to your core? When you look out and you scan the cafeteria, who are you sitting with right now? What's most comfortable to you right now? Unconscious biases, right? They're stereotypes about others that we can form without even knowing that we're doing so. We don't design the environments, right? But maybe the environments are affecting us in ways that we don't know. And in fact, there is no maybe here, right? Studies show that all humans, we are affected by environments. And just as an example, right, like I'm referencing today, for those of us who grew up in the United States, especially the school systems, our history is our lunchroom. And it's a lunchroom that has communicated racial inequality to us. I'm affected, you're affected, we are all affected in some way. Are we acknowledging that? Do we confront that? Are we considering that? And for some of us, our biases, they're easy to minimize. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not that kind of person. I don't live in that kind of neighborhood. I don't treat my coworkers differently. That would be mean to do that. I'm a better person. Maybe we get defensive at the thought that environments could affect us, right? We don't make the system. Hey, we just live in it, right? Don't blame me. It's not my fault. And maybe some of us do actually talk about it safely. We talk about it out there, right? As, as this intellectually stimulating idea, right? A dinner topic to, to discuss like we would discuss any other dinner topic. 
but we don't let that topic in. We don't let that topic force us to consider how that idea sits in the background of our lives and affects who we are, affects where we shop, affects who we invite over, affects what we're teaching our kids and the kids around us, affects how we treat or speak up for or respect our classmates and our coworkers. This fall, we're preaching through a sermon series we're calling Jubilee, right? Recalibrating for the common good. And in the series, we're looking at stories in which people have retuned their songs to bring about the common good around them and consider the ways that we can do the same. Our biases are one of the ways that we have absorbed an out-of-tune song. God is inviting us to recalibrate those to retune those, to release jubilee in our world around us. And last week, Chrissy preached from Exodus chapter 1. The, the Egyptian pharaoh was so afraid of the growing Hebrew population that pharaoh ethnically profiles, dehumanizes, and enslaves the Hebrews. And Chrissy showed us how two midwives, right, Shifra and Pua, inspired by their fear of the Lord, stood up to pharaoh. But instead of letting their courage recalibrate him, pharaoh doubles down. Pharaoh orders all Hebrew boys to be killed at birth. And in this day, right, pharaohs were considered gods. When Pharaoh spoke, Pharaoh spoke as a god. And all of the propaganda and all those environmental pressures that come with the voice of a god. And so if you were an Egyptian, the message was clear to you. Right? The gods wanted the Hebrews dead. And for all you knew, the Hebrews actually maybe were subhuman, right? Tools whose only purpose is to further that Egyptian way of life. And that's the stage set for us today as we turn to chapter 2. And already at the beginning of chapter 2, we have a conundrum. Because chapter 2 opens with a young Hebrew woman giving birth to a son. And right away, she is thrust into this insufferable situation. She can either obey the law, which requires her to give up her son to be killed... Or she can break the law, which would bring that heat onto her. And maybe she had a game plan. Maybe she had a plan of what she would do before she had the baby, but now she came into proximity to her baby, and she's looking down at her baby, and all game plans are going out the window. Nothing else matters to her other than this baby. So she makes a decision to keep the baby. She hides the baby for three months. Effectively, right, she's choosing to become a criminal of the state. But here's the thing about the babies, okay? They're, they can be pretty loud, really loud. And babies can grow, right, really fast. So sooner or later, mom can't hide the baby anymore. So in this, in this act of utter desperation, mom creates a makeshift basket, and she coats it in tar and pitch. And instead of giving over this child to be killed, as the Egyptian gods have ordained, she places the baby in the basket, and she lays the basket among the reeds of the Nile River, fully entrusting her baby to God or to fate or whomever. And before we blow by it, let's sit with that moment for just a second. Imagine those conversations leading up to that. Imagine the walk down to the river. Imagine the tears as mom weaves together this basket that's going to hold her three-month-old baby. Is the basket protective enough? Right? What if the basket springs a leak? What if an animal starts poking at it? Imagine her laying her baby, her precious, helpless, beautiful baby, that baby who has cooed and cried and who has cuddled and trusted her completely inside of this basket and just laying that basket among the reeds and then just walking away. Like, imagine that. The whole time, the baby's sister, 
uh, Miriam watches to see if anybody discovers the basket. Right? Will, will the person who discovers the basket, will they be us, one of us Hebrews, or will they be one of them Egyptians? And then a silhouette appears on the riverbank and starts sifting through the reeds, and Miriam gasps. Because the person going through the reeds is perhaps the worst person it could be. It's a maiden who serves Pharaoh's daughter. And what do you know? Pharaoh's daughter is standing right behind the maiden. I imagine Miriam is feeling hatred, fear, envy, frustration, anxiety, panic, as her baby brother is picked up by an Egyptian. Because from Miriam's perspective, right, Pharaoh's daughter sits on the far side of the cafeteria, raised in environments of bigotry, right, that deemed Hebrews unworthy of life. And this, to Miriam, is the all-is-lost moment. This is the Egyptians' gods killing blow onto this small Hebrew family who dared to have hope in a desperate situation. Pharaoh's daughter asks her maiden to bring her the strange object in the reeds, and she realizes it's a basket. She opens the basket, only to find the eyes of a newborn Hebrew baby boy staring right back at her. The baby does what babies do. The baby starts crying. (laughs) The baby starts crying. The text is clear to point out that there is something about the baby's crying that affects Pharaoh's daughter. Perhaps she saw not a Hebrew, but a baby in need. Perhaps she had heard cries of other Egyptian babies in her life, right? and only now she's realizing that, oh my gosh, this Hebrew baby's cry sounds just like Egyptian baby's cry. Maybe she's confronted for the first time with this power of proximity, right? being near to somebody who doesn't look like her. Her us and them worldview, by the way, is just screaming at her at this point. To be judgmental, to go and tell Pharaoh, to be a good Egyptian and to throw the baby back into the river. But instead, the text says that this little boy's crying is what stops her in her tracks. Pharaoh's daughter has all the power in this situation. She is the daughter of the king, right? She is the princess of a god, raised in lunchrooms that celebrate and reward her biases, right? Discipled by a father with biases of his own, biases that he legislated. There is perhaps nobody more primed to use their power in this moment. One figure with political and generational power and privilege standing over a baby completely helpless and vulnerable, a baby who can't do anything to protect themselves, utterly dependent on the people and the environments that surround them. But instead of using her power to harm, Pharaoh's daughter has compassion for him, spares him, protects him, all because of this baby's cry. By the way, remember, Miriam is still watching all of this. And, and knowing that it would have been unthinkable at the time for an Egyptian woman to nurse a Hebrew baby, Miriam seizes the moment, right? She jumps in, she runs up, and she asks, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Because Miriam just so happens to know a Hebrew woman who would be perfect for the job, right? Yes, do, the princess agrees. So Miriam runs, and she brings back the perfect candidate, Mom. Take this baby and nurse him for me, Pharaoh's daughter tells Mom. I will pay you for your help. So mom takes her baby home and nurses him. 
which I think is just awesome, right? Think about that. One moment, mom is sobbing, hiding her baby from the empire that wants her baby dead, but now that very empire is paying her to raise her baby. The text jumps ahead, right? A time skip. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who eventually adopted him as her own son. Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, for she drew him out of the water. And yes, this is the story of the infant Moses, right? The leader who, spoiler warning, partners with the Lord to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom. But even though the text jumps ahead, I don't want us to jump ahead quite yet. This morning, I want us to sit with the bravery and the courage of this young girl. We don't know what happens to Pharaoh's daughter after this story. But think about how much she's risking in this moment. Perhaps she's disowned by her father, cut off from his wealth. Maybe she's in prison. Maybe she's killed. I imagine there are social ramifications to what she's done when the Egyptian nation learns how, of all people, Pharaoh's daughter has disobeyed the gods. I'm sure her social and professional circles would have a field day with her. The environments that shaped her sang an out-of-tune song, right? Run away from the Hebrew, kill the Hebrew, ignore the Hebrew. The Hebrew is unsafe to you. The Hebrew is chaotic. Yet she is compelled by the cries of another human being to recalibrate that worldview. In fact, let's consider the bravery of all the women in this story. For those of us who have been around church, uh, we're familiar with the story of Moses, the leader who leads the Israelites out of slavery. We celebrate Moses' compassion, his conviction, his commitment to justice. But these women, in the first two chapters of Exodus, the midwives, the mom, the sister, Pharaoh's daughter, they are all making choices that help build a new environment, right? This new cafeteria, this new lunchroom for this baby. The faithful witness of the Hebrew midwives who are disobeying the law. The mother who functions as a fugitive. The sister who courageously speaks to Pharaoh's daughter and unites mother and son. Pharaoh's daughter who rejects her indoctrination and puts reputation and self on the line in order to love another human being. These women all do their part to set the table for compassion, conviction, courage, justice. Moses' childhood is presumably filled with the influence of these women who said and demonstrated that they loved him. Women who were willing to do whatever it took to show that love, to speak up for justice. These choices took an environment filled with death and, and despair and transformed that environment to one that may create life. Moses lives only because they did what was right at great risk to themselves. God recalibrated. God retuned their song, uniting them together to raise a child all because this baby cried. And they taught that retuned song to Moses to sing. And this is what God invites us to do, too. Because that same God, that same God who recalibrated the story's broken world, is also working right now to recalibrate our world. God is singing the song. God wants us to join in. God wants us to be part of it. And just like how these women loved those who were on their outside, God demonstrated love by proximity to us when we were on God's outside. Right? God didn't stay far away from us. God came near to us. God walked to the other side of the cafeteria. God became one of us in the person of Jesus so that Jesus could live in proximity to us and that we could live in proximity to Jesus. And repeatedly, Jesus breaks the us and them divide. 
He goes to the wrong people. He chooses nearness to others so that he can love them for who they are, where they are. He speaks up for the ones who have been othered by authority figures their whole lives. Jesus is offering a new song to the world, even when singing that new song dismantled the systems of his day. A dismantling, by the way, that had Jesus arrested and pushed him all the way to the cross. But even in the face of the cross, proximity to us was way too important. Even when death stares him down, Jesus still chooses us. Jesus still sings that song and still invites us to join in. And today, that song invites us to see the cross and to lay down all of those broken parts of us that have been shaped by broken environments. All the biases and prejudices and all the way that we miss one another and we misuse our power and privilege, lay them at the foot of the cross so that those things can die. This song is a song that is going to bring our healing. But we can't sing that song. We can't be healed unless we first acknowledge how out of tune we are. Because many of us, we're still tone deaf in ways that we don't even know. So how can we come back in tune, right? What, what does healing look like? Let's, let's get practical here. I believe healing always starts with going before the Lord and asking the Spirit for humility to highlight the environments that have shaped us. Our family growing up, our friends that we have today, the, the media that we consume, even the sermons that we hear, right? These things, they aren't innately bad things in a vacuum, in isolation, but they are all working together to, to make us who we are today. I encourage us to, to examine them, right? Let's, let's hold them accountable, not as a, a, a defiant person who's defensive towards these things, but hold them accountable as an act of worship to God, what lunchrooms were we a part of growing up? What lunchrooms do we now, through our power and our privilege, help create and perpetuate right now? Who are your Egyptians? Who are your Hebrews right now? Examine your personal and professional networks. Identify who is missing, and then ask the question, why? Why are they missing? What's keeping them out? What choices have been made to keep them out? Who are we overlooking? Who is being mistreated? What makes us now stay silent? And are we choosing our power, our comfort, our reputation over other human beings? I, I was given a tip. Uh, it's easier to identify your prejudice and your biases when you're feeling unsafe and uncomfortable. And this past week, I also discovered uh, Harvard's free online implicit association tests. It's a series of tests that measure your associations between concepts and stereotypes. I took these, and uh, I'll be very real, these tests were very convicting to me. Uh, these, there are tests like gender association tests, sexuality association tests, race, even uh, U.S. president's association tests, how all these things can affect the way that we see other human beings. You can Google this. If you're interested, I can give you the link, or you can take them yourselves, and I can show you them after service if you'd like to. That was vulnerable for me to take those. And as we've mentioned several times in this series, this is a vulnerable process. Having the humility to admit that we've been singing out of tune, that's terrifying. We want to manage our reputations. We want to appear like we have it all together. We want to score perfectly on the implicit association tests. But when we let Jesus in, Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. 
Jesus will invite us to examine our sin, and Jesus will invite us to put those, that sin on the cross with him so that it can die. He will heal. He will give sight to those who can't see. Jesus will repair. Jesus will recalibrate. He will provide a path to change, and change is scary. But the beautiful thing is here, Jesus has brought us, the church, together to help us do it. We, the church, we are a family defined not by a shared privilege or a shared trait or a shared space or shared perfection, right? We are a family defined by a shared need of healing and repentance. Christ says that it's when we lose our life, that's when we gain our life. Paul says to boast gladly in our weaknesses, boast gladly for the ways that you need to change. It's through our change, it's through identifying our weaknesses that Christ's power is made perfect in us. This is hard, hard, vulnerable work. And maybe for some of us, this text and this whole sermon series that we've been in, it's been stirring uncomfortable waters. Maybe some of us, we are in positions of power, like Pharaoh's daughter, right? And we have selfishly benefited from that power instead of using it to bring healing. And maybe some of us, like Miriam and Mom, have been or are right now somebody else's them. Maybe we've been in the out crowd, right, personally and systemically mistreated, even right now. And if this is the way that you're identifying with the text this morning, if you are the vulnerable baby that is cast aside, I want you to hear me say that God is near you. Overwhelmingly, the witness of Scripture shows that God operates for those trapped in unjust systems, a God who rescues the victims and sets captives free. And if you are cast into the reeds and nobody is coming to pick you up, or perhaps more painfully, if people have come over to you, looked at you, and decided that you're not worth saving, know that God also knows what it's like to be cast aside. God also knows what it's like to be forgotten by those who were supposed to love him. God sees you and is right now guiding you to places of safety and security. And that's who God always has been. That's who God always will be. That will be the God that we embrace one day fully in new creation. Full stop. More realistically, I think some of us have been a little bit of both. Right? We've been mistreated by power. We, we've both been mistreated by power and privilege, and we've selfishly benefited from some kind of power and privilege. Right, consider the categories that we shared earlier in the series. Race, gender, citizenship, class, education, sexual orientation, able-bodiedness. Christ wants all of us, all of these things, all of who we are, our positions of power and our positions of privilege to be instruments that we use to sing the song. Not our song. Christ's song. We on staff, like Matt, Megan, Chrissy, Matthew, and myself, we are here. If you need to vent, if you need to repent, if you disagree with us, if you need to dig in, or even if you just need somebody to hold space for you, we are here. We're not here with answers. We are here as friends who are wrestling with the same exact questions that you are, walking through the same exact wilderness. We are people dependent on God's grace and mercy. And even beyond us on staff, and I'm not just saying this here, we have really solid people here. <laughs> like really solid people here people who have pushed me and challenged me, people who call me out, people who remind me and point me to Jesus' song when I want to sing my song instead. 
people who want to have the conversations because they know how much the conversations matter in the grand course of healing. People who right now are indeed worshiping the Lord with their power and privilege. If the Spirit is stirring things up for you, I pray for the courage of Exodus women to come on to you, the midwives, the mother, the sister, the princess, to share your vulnerability with somebody else. Over coffee, during small group, in prayer with one another, to have the courage to ask the hard questions, to ask forgiveness and repentance, to examine and hold accountable your environments. Like the women in our story, you can see and you can notice someone from far away, right? But it's only when that baby is crying right in front of you that you hear them. We must know one another if we are able to hear one another's crying. Are we getting close enough? Are we getting close enough to each other to see each other's eyes, close enough to hear each other's cries, close enough to touch? Finally, to lean in a little bit uh, this morning, we just decided this past week that we're going to offer a night of prayer on Sunday evening, October 15th, at the Cushing's house. I don't think we're going to break out the pool on October 15th, but we'll be in the living room for that. Uh, That night, we want to come together to pray, to repent, to confess, to be together and worship and offer ourselves for God's recalibration. Jesus is in proximity to us, even now. Jesus is near to us, even now. And even as we feel our brokenness and sin and stare it down, I also want us to fear the nearness of each other and the nearness of Jesus.